Welcome to the podcast that breaks down historical topics for middle and high school students. But whether you're still in school, a teacher, or just someone who wants to learn about the past, we are so glad that you're listening. I'm your host, Samantha Futrell, and you are in history class. The causes of the Civil War have been debated for over a century, and mainly this discussion has been between white men who attribute or deny slavery's role in starting the Civil War. Let it be clear that there will be no debate on this issue during this episode. Slavery, its existence, its expansion, and its potential extinction in American society was the singular cause of the American Civil War. Some historians have even argued that a civil war in the United States was somewhat inevitable, considering the hypocrisy of America's foundations as a nation built on the glorious principle of equality and the hideous practice of slavery. So, the conflict within the nation had actually been brewing since the creation of the Constitution in 1783. Today, we will be dealing with the individual catalysts that caused Southern states to secede from the Union, all of which directly connect to the debate over the ownership of black and brown bodies in the United States between 1854 and 1861. If you're a student who's taking notes, these are the specific causes we're going to talk about today. Sectionalism, Bleeding Kansas, the Dred Scott decision, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the abolitionist movement, and finally, the 1860 election. Let's start with sectionalism. For me, this one was always really hard to understand in school. Maybe it's because the word itself has like five syllables. Sectionalism can be defined as the increasing divide in cultures, economies, and societies of the North and South prior to the Civil War. This can be most clearly seen in the North's rapid industrialization while the South continued to expand its agricultural economy. While this may not seem like a big deal, I mean, who cares? They can each do their own thing, right? Like, you do you, boo. It actually created a huge cultural divide for people living in these areas. People in the North had the opportunity to work outside of their homes on a daily basis, whether in factories or in other businesses while people in the South still remained largely confined to their own farms. The North began to accept large numbers of immigrants as well, which caused Southerners to disdain Northern culture and view it as un-American. Southerners saw themselves as refined, gallant gentry who continued Jeffersonian ideals of the agrarian lifestyle and viewed the Northerners as barbaric and dirty. But from the Northerner perspective, Southerners were the barbarians who treated enslaved people cruelly and were too lazy to do the work on their own farms. But the booming agriculture of King Cotton in the South and the heavy trade with the British Empire made the South rather wealthy and even more dependent on enslaved people. Now, let's remember that there were many textile factories in the North, and so they were also sharing the burden of the practice of slavery as well, but they just didn't really see it that way. So as the divide grew, Southerners in particular began to take greater pride in identifying themselves as South Carolinians or Georgians or North Carolinians than as Americans. 
Consequently, this growing sectionalism not only divided the North and South based on cultural and economic differences, but it also encouraged Southerners to think of themselves as part of separate states, rather than a collective union under one authority and constitution. With growing sectionalism also came the debate for states' rights, which is often cited among causes of the Civil War and was even a point of debate in 1860 at the election. We are not going to discuss states' rights as a cause of the Civil War simply because states' rights versus federal rights was a way to detract from the issue of slavery because the issue in question that states wanted the right to was the power to hold enslaved people as property. The next major catalyst in the Civil War that we're going to discuss is Bleeding Kansas, and within that, John Brown's raid. Bleeding Kansas is the name given to a series of violent uprisings in Kansas as a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. In 1854, Kansas and Nebraska were both eligible to become states, and according to the Missouri Compromise that was passed in 1820, both states would be added into the Union as free states because their territory was occupied above the 3630 parallel. The 3630 parallel was a line of latitude used to determine the extension of slavery in the United States. Basically, the Missouri Compromise said that all future states that were added into the Union above the 3630 parallel would be free, and all states that were added below the 3630 parallel would be slave states. So obviously, both states were added into the Union as free states, and there were zero issues, and everybody who lived there became a tooth fairy. Not exactly. Debate arose over the validity of the Missouri Compromise, and Congress was split on whether or not to allow slavery's extension into these territories. So they came up with a genius idea that resulted in several massacres. The idea was popular sovereignty. I'll say that again, popular sovereignty. Basically, popular sovereignty says that the population in each state would have the right to vote on whether or not slavery would exist in that territory. Unfortunately, the Western moving migrants were a split on the issue of slavery as Congress was. Some wanted to extend slavery into those territories so that they could be as financially successful as other Southerners. However, white migrants known as free soilers did not really agree with that. Free Soilers didn't have a moral issue with slavery, but they did have an issue with the economics of slavery. See, Free Soilers were people who wanted to avoid slavery in Kansas and Nebraska because they quite simply could not afford to buy enslaved people. And they thought the existence of large plantations would infringe on their smaller agricultural ventures. Ultimately, the debate over popular sovereignty not only resulted in a Southern Democrat beating a Northern Republican named Charles Sumner with his cane on the Senate floor until Senator Sumner had to be carried away to a hospital bleeding profusely, it also caused a little event known as John Brown's raid. John Brown was an abolitionist who was outraged by bleeding Kansas and the extension of slavery in the United States. And he just also had a fantastic beard. In October of 1859, he led a small militia of 18 other white men to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, where they hoped to raid a U.S. arsenal and start a national slave rebellion. 
Unfortunately, Brown was just not a great planner. He and his party captured the federal arsenal rather easily, but when they tried to rally the slaves in Harper's Ferry, none of them rose up to help Brown and his men, mostly out of fear and mostly because they had no idea who Brown was. The townspeople, though, did come to meet Brown and his men at the arsenal and gunfire was exchanged. Two of Brown's men died, and he and his party were captured shortly afterwards by a band of United States soldiers under the command of a little-known general named Robert E. Lee. Ultimately, Brown and his men were executed for treason, and to the South, Brown became the supreme example of the extreme madman abolitionist. But to the North, Brown became a symbol of white resistance to slavery, and even Ralph Waldo Emerson said upon Brown's execution that Brown would make the gallows as glorious as the cross, meaning that he was basically a martyr for the issue of slavery in the United States. The growth of the abolitionist movement in the United States, or the anti-slavery movement, was championed by two female figures, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Harriet Tubman. Both women had direct connections to the Underground Railroad, which was a network of safe houses that enslaved people could use to escape to the North, West, and Canada. Harriet Tubman was well known in this, in this network. Harriet Tubman was well known in this network, and as an escaped slave herself, she committed herself to organizing and performing covert missions to rescue enslaved people and is known to have performed at least 13 rescue missions by herself, saving over 70 people. Stowe was a white woman whose family took in enslaved people as part of the Underground Railroad network. After their family took in their first refugee, she began to write her famous novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which told the story of an enslaved man, Tom, and his ultimate martyrdom at the hand of a cruel white master. The book sold over 300,000 copies in its first year of publication and is often credited with increasing Northern white involvement in the abolitionist movement. Stowe even met Abraham Lincoln after the Civil War began in 1862, and as Lincoln, a towering figure at six foot five, shook hands with Stowe, a small woman barely five feet tall, Lincoln reportedly said, so you're the little lady who started this great big war. Overall, the Underground Railroad helped at least 100,000 enslaved people reach freedom prior to the start of the Civil War, and Harriet Tubman, as well as Stowe's Uncle Tom, became symbols of this movement and of the abolitionist spirit in the United States. But even reaching the North did not guarantee freedom for enslaved people. This was true for Dred Scott and his family. In 1846, Scott and his family lived as slaves under their master in a free territory for four years. According to the current laws, a master gave up its rights to his slaves after living in free territory for a certain amount of time. And so technically, Scott and his wife, Harriet, were actually free. So they decided to sue for the freedom of their family. The case made its way to the Supreme Court in 1857. That year, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Scott's master in a landmark 7-2 decision. The Dred Scott case set a precedent, which is the legal term for an example of which a future legal decision should be based on, that neither Scott nor any person of African ancestry could attain citizenship in the United States, 
and consequently could be considered property until voluntary manumission or freedom was given to them by their master. This is a huge blow to the slave community in the United States, as well as the abolitionist community. Ultimately, the Dred Scott decision would be overturned by the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery in the United States, and the subsequent 14th Amendment, which naturalized all people living in the United States, even those of African ancestry, and made them citizens. All of these catalysts came to a head in 1860, when the presidential election occurred. In that election, Abraham Lincoln, a Republican senator from Illinois, faced three other candidates, John C. Breckinridge, a Southern Democrat, John Bell, part of the Constitutional Union Party, and Stephen Douglas, a Northern Democrat, also from Illinois. We're not going to go over a bunch of the platforms from the 1860 election because, quite frankly, the only one that matters is the stance on slavery that each of the candidates had. Breckinridge was a radical supporter, meaning he supported both the existence of slavery and the extension of slavery into Western territories. Bell and the Constitutional Union Party supported the existence of slavery, but wanted to make compromises on its extension, ultimately to avoid secession from the Union. Douglas's opinions were less clear. He owned a plantation, so he obviously supported the existence of slavery, but supposedly he wanted to limit the extension of slavery into Western territories, but would still do so as long as it preserved the Union. Lincoln, finally, of course, did not support the existence or the extension of slavery, but let it be clear that he did try to appear more moderate during his campaign for the presidency, and ultimately said that he would be willing to compromise on the issue of slavery if it would ultimately preserve the Union. Ultimately, Lincoln won both the popular and the electoral vote in November of 1860, despite not even appearing on ballots in 10 Southern states. The result? South Carolina seceded from the Union, and the rest of the Southern states followed South Carolina's example, forming the Confederate States of America. Then, in April of 1861, not even four months after Lincoln took office, the Confederates bombarded Fort Sumter and began the Civil War. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next time because we're going to be diving into a little bit of the military history of the Civil War. Specifically, we're going to be looking at battles and happenings between 1861 and 1863. If you're a teacher and you've enjoyed this podcast, we highly recommend you check out our Teachers Pay Teachers page where you can find coinciding material that you can work on with your class that actually goes along with this podcast episode. If you're just someone who's listening for fun or if you're a student, we highly recommend that you subscribe if you can and give us five stars as it helps other people find our podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time in history class.